The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Hey, it's Doug Miller, a contributing editor with the Charlotte Ledger, and you're listening to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger and subscribe to one of our newsletters by going to thecharlotteledger.com. And if you like this podcast, feel free to follow it or share it with a friend. This episode of the Charlotte Ledger podcast is presented by Crisis Assistance Ministry. This holiday season, thousands of our neighbors are struggling to keep their power flowing, to keep a roof over their heads and stabilize their families. You can make a difference in their lives by supporting Crisis Assistance Ministry today. Give hope, warmth, and light to those in need by donating at crisisassistance.org slash ledger. Today, the podcast is diving into the topic of the future of work. The Ledger just published a four-part series on the future of work with the reporters examining different aspects of how workplaces are changing. So we'll talk to the four reporters who worked on the series about what insights they came away with. The reporters are Lindsay Banks, who wrote about what Gen Z is looking for in the workplace, Hannah Lang, who wrote about how remote work has affected office towers, Carrie Singe, who wrote about the offices of tomorrow, and Christina Bowling, who wrote about how small towns are luring remote workers. Joining me now is Lindsay Banks, a reporter at the Charlotte Ledger. Hey, Lindsay. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time. Your story in the Future of Work series is about uh, mentorships and, and a really interesting look at what younger workers, specifically Generation Z, is looking for. Can you Talk a little bit about what your story investigated and, and what you found out. Sure. So I came at the story with a little bit of an interesting perspective because I fall into that Gen Z category. So those born between 1996 and 2010. So a lot of the things that I found out through my reporting, I could relate to, I guess, in a sense. So, you know, what I found is a lot of Gen Z employees, they are craving mentors at work. And um, more than that, they're craving in-person interactions with their colleagues and those that have, you know, been maybe at the job longer than them and have more experience. And with the pandemic, a lot of a lot of employees, a lot of workplaces moved online. It's different when you're in person and you can learn a lot when you're working in person and seeing people around you do their jobs. And so with that, Gen Z, they weren't getting those mentorship relationships that kind of naturally form in the workplace when you are working in person. So I I spoke to a couple of people, one being somebody from Red Ventures, Kaylin Boyer, and we kind of just talked about some mentorship programs that are happening at Red Ventures. It's a media company that's based in Indian land. And they have, since the pandemic, actually, the pandemic is kind of what prompted these two mentorship programs, but they're targeting younger employees that are new to their careers and connecting them with people in the company that have been working for the company for a while and kind of giving them a somewhat of a structured mentorship program as far as, you know, connecting them and helping them kind of learn from each other. That's also another thing that I learned through my reporting is that mentorships these days are kind of a two-way relationship. So it's not just mentees learning from mentors. It's mentors learning from mentees. There's a lot of new software and tech out there that Gen Z, the Gen Z population seems to be able to, you know, maybe more easily navigate. We grew up with technology. We grew up with social media and things like that. So 
the understanding comes a little bit easier to the Gen Z population. And so with that, you know, Gen Z employees are able to help them learn and understand new things that are happening in, in the workforce. That's really interesting. What, why is this such a priority for Red Ventures and, and other companies, I imagine? Right. Well, I, you know, was listening to this podcast where Rick Elias, the CEO of Red Ventures, he was on the Peter Atia Drive podcast. And he was talking about how necessary in-person working relationships are because he fears that, you know, we're going to look back in a decade and all of these really important skills that come with working in person, interacting with people in person, you learn those when you're having those interactions. And so, you know, he's worried that with virtual and hybrid work, these skills are going to be lost. And so that's why companies all over have started these, you know, mentorship programs. And it's not necessarily a new concept, but it is the importance of these relationships has really been brought to light since the pandemic and since virtual work became more common. So you mentioned the story resonated with you being a member of Generation Z. And I know I'm Generation X. And what I really liked about the story was it sort of turned on its head. And, and I, the idea that many older folks might have that, oh, younger folks don't want to learn from us or they uh, see the value in it. And this shows almost the opposite, that younger workers crave that kind of feedback. Right, exactly. Yeah, there are, I mean, a lot of studies out there right now that, and I came across a few, that show that Gen Z, they are craving these mentorships and they want to be in person. LinkedIn actually did an analysis of applications that were submitted this past year. And it showed that Gen Z is the least likely to apply for remote roles compared to other generations. And then Axios did a survey that found 41% of younger employees are worried about mentoring possibilities. So that just goes to show that Gen Z, contrary maybe to popular belief, Gen Z wants to be in person and they want to have these mentorship relationships. So I imagine that not just... Besides just doing the right thing with workers and helping them develop, retention is a big reason for these kind of programs. I imagine younger workers seek out employers and will lead employers if they don't have the kind of mentoring and feedback that they're looking for. Right, exactly. I mean, these not necessarily having designated programs, mentorship programs, you know, I, I think that's not what people are saying that every business needs to go out and they need to develop some sort of structured programming. But, you know, at least having people in the workplace that have been there for a while that are open to kind of taking on newer employees, taking them under their wing and just kind of being a resource for them. And I mean, that's important, I think, for not just Gen Z, but for workers across every generation is having a workplace where you feel supported and you feel excited to come in and you're able to collaborate with the people around you and bounce ideas off of each other and that kind of thing. And it just kind of helps with that overall company culture. Lindsay, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you. I'm with Hannah Lang and she reported and wrote a story for our Future of Work series. Um, it deals with how the changing workplace has transformed some of the, I guess you could call them legacy office buildings in Charlotte. Hannah, um, thanks for taking the time to speak with us about this. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about what you found out when you when you dug into this issue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, of course, the changes in the way that we approach 
how we work and the advent of working from home has really changed the way we think about how we use office buildings and, and what we traditionally consider to be workspaces as well. And Charlotte is no exception. Uh, you know, it's been a little more than two years since Charlotte's largest employers started bringing people back uh, to these to these roles in person that we would traditionally think of as in office. Uh, and of course, many have returned to a hybrid model or, um, you know, are still working from home at least part of the time or um, have not returned to being in the office uh, five days a week. We do see more and more folks coming back in top down. There is more and more foot traffic these days, um, but that's not at 2019 levels. And I think one place in which that's pretty clear is the office real estate market in Charlotte. As I mentioned, it does seem like a partial shift away from the office is permanent. And we're seeing that in higher vacancies. Office vacancies have doubled in Uptown specifically. We're seeing a few large dollar delinquencies on office loans in Uptown. And of course, this shift has been one that the commercial real estate market is adjusting to across the country. But, you know, somewhat worrying for a town like Charlotte that has built so much new office space in just the past few years. It's, it's kind of incredible to think when you look at our Charlotte's wonderful, you know, skyline to think that some of the, those tallest buildings are, I mean, how empty are some of them? Yeah, I mean, they're surprisingly empty, especially when you think of how large some of these buildings are and then, as you mentioned, how iconic they are to Charlotte's skyline. A ledger analysis in June found that at least 10 towers in Uptown were more than 50% empty. And that includes, you know, buildings like One Wells Fargo, the Wake Forest Charlotte Center, buildings that many of us would recognize walking through Uptown. But, you know, they're struggling with with vacancies and, you know, office leasing activity is down across the board, about 25 uh, percent, according to one of the sources I spoke with. Wow. And then you also reported that the delinquencies are a, another issue. And that really put us on the top of a list we don't want to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there are some pretty large dollar delinquencies in Uptown on some Uptown buildings that are, yeah, that are propelling Charlotte to the top of these rankings uh, nationwide, which is troubling. But I also think it's important to remember here that it's a few really big loans that are driving this number up as opposed to a broader base problem. Uh, but again, yeah, still a little bit concerning given the size of these buildings and the size of these loans. You know, it's one thing that you, you had workers working remotely and then slowly coming back, still not 100 percent to where they were before the pandemic. But I, another interesting dynamic is that areas like South End, which are hot and, and really attractive for, for workers, is also putting a strain on these legacy office buildings. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's another shift that ha is happening as well. In addition to, yeah, as you mentioned, folks coming into the office less, employers, when they are thinking about you know, the office spaces that they're going to invest in, um, or how they want to make use of their in-person workspaces. You know, they want it to be a place that attracts workers, um, both new workers and and those currently working from home. They want it to be a space that employees, you know, look forward to coming into and and have all those, you know, subsequent amenities. So I heard it described by my sources as a, a flight to quality, quote unquote, so that when it, these large employers are investing in office space, um, it's going to be in, in swankier spaces and newer spaces. And so we're seeing some really pronounced struggles in older office buildings for that reason. When you were reporting the story, you know, and I, I know you, you know, went out on the streets and talked to people. What did you hear from 
people who we might not think of, like small business owners. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think this is a really interesting part of the discussion when we think about, uh, you know, office space and commercial real estate and, and, and things like that. There's a sort of sense of forebodingness when we have this conversation um, in cities across the country, uh, because so many of a city's largest office spaces often overlap with its commercial center or its downtown or uptown, as we think of it in Charlotte. You know, and economists have warned that trouble in office spaces could have consequences for local or regional economies more broadly, right? That these consequences could spiral out uh, beyond the the commercial real estate sector. Uh, and that's sort of, that logic looks like, you know, as commuters dwindle, so does business and foot traffic at local shops and restaurants. Uh, when office use declines, you know, so do the values of those buildings. The city collects smaller property tax revenues. They're able to offer their residents less in the ways of services. It's called an urban doom loop, which is a really scary name. <laughs> and the prospect of, of that type of thing adds some drama to these conversations we're having about, about the office market. Charlotte is probably pretty insulated from something like that. We've still got a decent number of folks uptown. We've got a strong regional economy. Uh, you know, we have our sports stadiums and arenas right there. Um, so I don't think that we need to be worried about something that drastic. But that being said, you know, I think I think it's fair to say that Charlotte's office spaces, especially the largest ones in South End and Uptown, have created something of an ecosystem. Well, thanks for sharing what you learned, Hannah, and, and taking time with us today. Absolutely. Thank you. This episode of the Charlotte Ledger podcast is presented by Crisis Assistance Ministry, dedicated to restoring the hope, warmth, and light of home. I'm joined now by Carrie Singe. Her story takes a look at what the offices of tomorrow might look like as, for, as part of our Future of Work series. How's it going, Carrie? Great. Thanks for taking time to talk about your story. Oh, my pleasure. So what does the office of tomorrow, or even today for that matter, look like? Well, it's looking like it's going to be more fun and more inviting than years past. Uh, so when talking with people for the story, the term hospitality kept coming up. And that is where architects and designers are now looking for ideas. Designs are cozy and comfortable. There are amenities such as meditation rooms and golf simulators. And employers are offering food and coffee on site. And we are not talking about vending machines and a pot of burnt coffee that's been sitting there for hours. <laughs> But this is like fresh, made-to-order food and upscale lattes. And I'm also hearing about cocktail bars and craft beer being available on site. Wow, that's that's very different from the offices of the past that many of us knew, for sure. Definitely. What? So what's the thinking behind all these amenities? Well, you know, employers are looking to inspire workers to want to return to the office. Now, mandates to return to the office post-pandemic have really not worked well. And it's not just comfort that is keeping workers at home. Some really decided that they don't like a commute, the time or the cost associated with it. So employers are having to come up with creative ideas to encourage workers to leave the comfort of their home office and be willing to take up a commute and make the trek back into the office again. And so they're really thinking, what will be fun? What can they do in the office that they aren't doing at home? So of all these fun and different things, what surprised you? You know, it was something I heard about All Spring Global Investments headquarters in South End. When we were talking about the space that was being designed, we're talking 32,000 square foot headquarters with 10 private offices and 123 workstations. And all the offices are the same size. 
So that means like no more big corner offices for leadership. I thought that was really kind of interesting. And it was explained to me that the company really just wanted to have spaces for focused work or larger collaborative meetings that everyone could kind of use. So no more big, big, big corner offices. That surprised me. Wow, that is much different as well. So it seems like beyond productivity and collaboration, the new spaces are as important for recruiting talent. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, office design is being seen as a really important tool for economic development. And, you know, employers really want workers back to the office and workers, many workers are resisting. I mean, we keep hearing stories about workers are quitting, you know, feeling like there are others option, other options out there. So Kathleen Rose of Rose and Associates, she shared with me, she said, for workers to come to the office, it has to be an environment that they are excited about. So that's the challenge. And it's one that companies are tapping office designers for to help them. So it's all about competing for talent and what you can offer to get them not only out of their home, but to your office instead of someone else's. No more beige carpet and fluorescent lighting for sure. Absolutely. Goodbye. Yep. That's well, out. Well, thanks for walking us through that, Carrie. And uh, thanks for taking the time. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Welcome, Christina Bowling, Managing Editor of the Charlotte Ledger. Hey, Doug. Tell us about your installment in our Future of Work series. Sure. So I've always been curious about remote workers and, you know, if you can work from literally anywhere, where do you go? And, you know, definitely we saw during the pandemic, a lot of companies went remote and stayed remote. And, you know, even before that, the remote workforce was on the rise. And so I was curious about what are some areas in North Carolina where remote workers have you maybe discovered them or have, you know, been been discovering and, and, and journeying to and, and moving into because of maybe they like the atmosphere there, they like the, the geography or whatever. And so in my research, I found that Rocky Mountain, North Carolina is an interesting place. It's in the east side of the state. And they have actually, in the last several years, created some interesting spaces that have become places where some remote workers have tended to settle because they just simply like being there. When I think of remote work where I can just open my laptop, I think Asheville and Outer Banks. So Rocky Mount, what kind of a town is that? Yes, it, Rocky Mount is um, an interesting place in the eastern part of the state. It used to be a manufacturing center. It had a cotton mill that was made up a large portion of the town. It is very close to interstates. And so it's been, you know, kind of a transit place where people would stop, you know, along the highway. It's got some beautiful geography, though. It's got, you know, places where people hike and there's a lot to kind of see. There's a river and, and things to see and do in that area. A lot of natural beauty. Has the town is been on the upswing or the downswing? The town's been on the downswing. And in fact, hmm. the last few decades, they've lost some population just uh, due to the mill closing um, that was a big employer in town. Um, they do have a couple of large employers. They have a Pfizer um, is there and they have a Cummins uh, facility as well. And their healthcare system is, I think, the third largest employer in the area. So th the town has you know, seen some decline. But in the last couple of years since the pandemic, if you look at the in-migration numbers, it's actually gone up a bit. Wow. So this is seen as sort of a way to maybe um, reinvent for the town to reinvent or the city to reinvent itself? Yeah, 
Yeah, I can't say that Rocky Mount has done a, you know, aggressive marketing campaign like, you know, remote workers come here. There is the old cotton mill that has in the last several years been redeveloped. It's a really interesting adaptive reuse project that has taken place. And it, they've created almost, I, I went and spent some time there and it is almost like a college campus in that it has uh, a places where you can work. So, you know, small businesses can locate there. It has restaurants, it has a coffee shop, it has breweries, very big on breweries. They have, I think, five breweries on, on the campus and they have places where people can live. And so I, you know, talked to one remote worker who lives there and, you know, could literally be anywhere in the state of North Carolina for her job and chose the Rocky Mountain Mills because she felt like she could kind of enjoy the natural beauty of Eastern North Carolina, being close to the interstate and also live in a community where there are, you know, other people her age and have just a lot going on, just kind of like right at her fingertips. Very interesting. What are, are the rents reasonable or is this a real exclusive kind of a place? Right. I mean, it, in Rocky Mountain Mills, the rents are definitely affordable. It's about 40 minutes or so from Raleigh. And she was saying, you know, when she was looking at where to locate, she looked at Raleigh and decided that the rents and the cost of living in Raleigh was going to be much higher than in Rocky Mount. And so she felt like, you know, she can enjoy the natural beauty and kind of the, the, the quietness of Rocky Mount. But when she wants to go to a sporting event or a cultural show or something like that, you know, Raleigh is not too far. So definitely these, you know, towns like Rocky Mount are seen as more affordable places than your Asheville's and your, you know, your beach communities and things like that, where there's so much demand and um, prices are much higher. One more question. Do you see this happening in other parts of the state? Yeah, Doug. So definitely people are saying, you know, it's definitely happening in, in some of the mountain towns like your Boone's and your Asheville's. The coastal communities also where a lot of people flocked during COVID. When I talk to some economic development officials with the state, they say it's really a hard thing to measure. It's hard to tell, you know, where remote workers are settling. But they say anecdotally, you know, they are seeing that that it's definitely a, a workforce that is growing in, in North Carolina. Um, and they're trying to kind of get a handle on how to figure out uh, how large it is and how to position themselves in a way to try to capture that. Christina, thanks so much for talking about your story. Thanks a lot, Doug. It's been fun. That's it for today. This episode of the Charlotte Ledger podcast is presented by Crisis Assistance Ministry, bringing hope, warmth, and light to those in financial crisis. Support our mission today. The Charlotte Ledger podcast is produced by Lindsay Banks. Check out the Charlotte Ledger at thecharlotteledger.com. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. Queen